This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Paula Varsano, and I'm Professor of East Asian Languages and Cultures and Chair of the Forster Lectures Committee. We're very pleased, along with the Graduate Council, uh, to present Marilyn Strathern, this year's speaker in the Forster Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we're obligated to tell you how the endowment supporting the Forster Lectures on the Immortality of the Soul came to UC Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies in many ways this camp, how, in many ways, how this campus is linked to the history of California and the Bay Area. In 1928, Miss Edith Zweibrook established the Forster Lectureship to honor the memory of Agnes A. Forster and Constantine E. A. Forster. Edith was a public school teacher in San Francisco for many years, and the teaching profession was, to her, an opportunity to develop a true knowledge and love of the spiritual values of life in the young minds entrusted to her, her, to her care. Edith's beloved sister, Agnes A. Forster, shared her high ideals and her hopes, as did Agnes's husband, Constantine E. A. Forster. A lawyer by profession, Forster was a man of high intellectual achievement and of rare personal charm. Although he passed away at the age of 37, he had achieved an enviable place at the San Francisco Bar and was considered one of its most highly respected members. For several years prior to his death, Forrester was a law partner of Alexander F. Morrison, one of the most prominent of San Francisco attorneys for whom our own Morrison Memorial Library is named. In her last days, Miss Edith Zweibrook expressed her deep and abiding interest in the spiritual life by creating this lecture series on the, on the subject, The Immortality of the Soul, or other similar spiritual subjects. She left us a little bit of leeway there. She believed that through the medium of a great university and the words of scholarly lecturers, she might bring new light upon a subject that has interested the world for centuries. Thank you, Edith Zweibrook. And now about our lecturer. Distinguished social anthropologist Marilyn Strathern's first field site was in Melanesia. But it's fair to say that she quickly revealed herself to be an incisive ethnographer of Euro-American society, society too, casting over a period of some 40 years a penetrating yet generous eye on questions ranging from the representation and practice of gender and kinship, which engaged her early on, to the social significance of reproductive technologies and intellectual property, and beyond. But there is a guiding thread, as there often is in the work of a great scholar, a fruitfully troubling line of interrogation that extends through her work. Always in her sights seems to be a questioning of the very mechanisms of knowledge formation and knowledge formulation that have long guided scholars in her field. Indeed, 
and this is very impressive to me, it was during her undergraduate years that she first began interrogating not just the objects of anthropological research, but the research practices themselves. As described in one of the many encyclopedia entries dedicated to somehow capturing the breadth of her contribution, Professor Strathern quickly arrived at the point of asking not so much what specific objects or practices mean, but what does it mean anthropologically to ask after them? One of her best-known works, and she is the author of 15 books, is The Gender of the Gift, published in 1988 and first drafted while a visiting scholar here at Berkeley, which she describes as a, quote, gentle deconstruction of gender relations in New Guinea, but which the Encyclopedia of Theory and Social and Cultural Anthropology describes as doubly admonitory. For it takes seriously the fact that constructs of gender observed in the field are not ready-made realities waiting for analysis. Rather, they are ever-evolving, historically and socially specific categories in dynamic formation at all times, and not just in the observed society, but in that of the observer. Her 1991 work, Partial Connections, expands this rather dizzying line of thinking into the larger question of meaning-making. It's especially difficult to do justice to this work, recognized almost since its publication as a classic in the field. It makes for challenging reading, at least for the likes of me, and not least because language itself comes under scrutiny. And this, from the perspective of a student of literature is a wonderful thing. As I have done what can only be described as reading in Strathern, I've come to think of her work as offering a poetics of social anthropology, a body of scholarship that takes fiction in all of its senses seriously, in which aesthetics and politics, history and self-reflection unfailingly bespeak her fine-tuned instinct for anthropology's basis in relationality. From what I understand, Professor Strathern is, as a matter of fact, currently working on a book simply called Relations, which I now cannot wait to read. Marilyn Strathern received her BA in Archaeology and Anthropology in 1963 and her PhD in Social Anthropology from Cambridge University. Strathern held positions at the Australian National University in Canberra, and at the Girton and Trinity Colleges in Cambridge, as well as guest lecturing at UC Berkeley. In 1985, she was appointed chair of the Department of Social Anthropology at Manchester University before returning to Cambridge to serve as William Wise Professor of Social Anthropology from 1991 until her retirement in 2008. Other notable positions include Life Fellow of Girton College at Cambridge, Honorary Life President of the UK and Commonwealth Association of Social Anthropologists, Presidential Chair of the European Association of Social Anthropologists, Honorary Fellow of Trinity College, and former member of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. Regarding today's Forrester Lecture, Souls in Other Cells and the Immortality of the Body, 
Professor Strather notes, sometimes the soul seems more precise, seems a more precise concept than the body. This lecture goes to a place in time where all kinds of beings, including food plants, have souls, and where the bodily basis of life is immortalized through cloning. It comments on the way present-day anthropology brings fresh illumination to what we thought we knew. It's my pleasure to welcome Professor Marilyn Strathern to Berkeley. I should say back to Berkeley. Thank you so much. I find it such a pleasure to be in Berkeley again, and in particular to have the honour of giving the Foster Lecture. It's customary on such occasions to make a gesture towards the rubric of the lecture. But I want to make more than a gesture. Adding to my warm thanks to the Graduate Council for the kindness of the invitation, thanks are also due to Miss Edith Zweibruck and the memorial she set up. That she specified the immortality of the soul as a topic of contemplation has led me to some anticipated thoughts on matters that one would imagine had already been thought through to exhaustion, if not actually discarded as unfit for present-day thinking. Anyway, I do mean thanks. Because raising the question of the immortality of the soul becomes provocative when the soul in question is the archetype of soul in the history of anthropological theory, namely the animist soul as it became known in the late 19th century. And I refer to Edward Tyler's landmark publication on religion in primitive culture in 1871. Tyler demonstrated that everywhere people had ideas about souls, whether personal or diffused through notions of ghosts and spirits, and encompassing the animation of all kinds of beings as though, like people, they too had souls. More than that, his thesis was that this apprehension of the vital breath or spirit pervading everything, extensions of what human beings sensed of themselves, was the earliest sign of a religious disposition. It was at once the basis of later religious development, hence hence the primitive in his title, and could be found here and there in survivals. Thus he both brought animism within the purview of the world's cultures and revealed its formative role in what his contemporaries regarded as the higher religions. Tyler's theory had a long life, at least to the end of the 19th century. Now, in the course of his extensive elaboration, Tyler does something rather surprising. He suggests that we would be imposing later theological formulations onto animism to suppose that the animist soul was immortal. The animist soul is not immortal, he said. Hmm. The questions come crowding in. So what is a soul? So what is mortality? And if the soul is not immortal, is nothing immortal? 
The very doctrine of souls so central to theories of animism is not as straightforward as it might seem. The argument I eventually make is rather simple and aspects of it have been articulated many times. But how we get to it perhaps holds a little interest. I'm going to set out various staging posts on the way. And at the outset, the posts will seem rather far apart. So they had nothing to do with one another. But hopefully they will move closer together as we proceed. They are by way of illuminations more than anything. And if I may be so bold, may I suggest you just sit back and relax (laughs) and allow yourself to be carried from one to the other. The overall signpost to our destination comes from Miss Zweibruck. It reads, the signpost reads, what might happen if, contra Tyler, we dare ask precisely about immortality in aminist thought? And I'm going to refer to one of the great regions of the world whose indigenous cosmologies are often described as animist, namely Melanesia. Staging post one, the immortality of scholarship. (laughs) Let me start with a circular enlightenment form of immortality. One that certainly is, but is also a little more than metaphoric. I would not be finding much of interest in this Victorian idea of animism if it were not for its spectacular rebirth in recent anthropological debate. Often remarked upon with some surprise, animism now circulates as a respectable term for insight into the lives and ontologies of certain peoples, as though the very concept were risen from the dead. What remains dead is much of the evolutionary apparatus of Tyler's thinking as in the assumption that present-day animist practices indicate lower echelons of spirituality or in higher religions occur as mere survivals. Indeed, as originally presented, the theory of animism is a bit of an embarrassment. At the same time, the notion that animism is best understood as a projection of human experience onto other forms of life continues to be debated. In any event, recent anthropological analysis has converted its awkward primitivism into a dazzling array of tools for thought. And I'm briefly going to mention three names, but you don't need to hold on to them. So we can read the animist soul in other terms. For example, through Bird David's relational epistemology, alongside Descola's interest in the way human interiority is attributed to other beings, or with Averis de Castro on subject positions, animism being less a mental state than a theory of mind. However, rather than offering other concepts and thus transcending the concept of soul, I want to turn back to it rather than away from it. In anthropology's ceaseless battle with its own ethnocentrism, 
One strategy is not to avoid the weight and freight of its own vocabulary, but instead get up close to it. This is in order to test its limits. So precisely in order to interrogate the concept, I propose to talk of the animist soul more or less in its Victorian sense. Among many of Tyler's contemporaries, after all, it was a counterpart to the kind of soul they thought they had. Of course, I've no idea if Miss Svybrook herself had given much thought to animism. This returns us to its present-day incarnation. Think of the legal axiom that through bequests and such like, a person's will endures beyond their decease. In the same way, academia embraces a commitment to the future of scholarship that will be carried forward by diverse minds, sometimes giving the impression that the mind thereby endures. Yet just as the will only has a future through the good offices of the heirs, for all that scholars may celebrate the origination of ideas in someone's mind, Tyler's thoughts seemingly being given a new lease of life, these ideas are now embedded within a scholarly apparatus that has a life of its own. They continue in other minds as notions refashioned for other debates. If this continuity is immortality of a kind, then it flourishes through specific acts of regeneration, as when new formulations are acknowledged and recognised as the rebirth of old ones. As we leave the staging post behind, it's with the suggestion that we have in the scholarly circulation and reinvention of ideas a model of how people's thoughts serve as conduits, channels, for the thoughts of others. Staging post two, prehistoric horticulture. And I said at the beginning they'd be rather (laughs) far apart. So this staging post seems a bit of an outlier. We find ourselves on a Melanesian island in the Pacific 10,000 years ago. Not to linger, but staying just long enough to introduce some notable plants. In fact, Tyler sent us over here with his remarks on the souls of plants as a doctrine, I quote, that lay deep in the intellectual history of Southeast Asia, and he was including the Pacific. We now know that the exploitation of food crops uh, there goes back uh, well well, um, uh, before this. However, 10,000 years is interesting to me as the horizon of an archaeological site in in the Mount Hagen area of the western highlands of Papua New Guinea called Cook, and it's spelt K-U-K, Cook, a few miles from where the first Australians to come to Hagen in 1933, set up camp. That horizon of 10,000 years has yielded evidence of artefacts and cultivation features and and the, the years following, such as a stone pestle used to prepare yams along with taro seeds and starch grains. Yams and taro were being exploited at the site although undisputed evidence of cultivation in the form of ditching and mounding 
is 3,000 years later. But we are talking of 7,000 years ago, and you can orient this with what you know, what was happening with rice in China and, of course, with the Middle East. These were root crops. The 1930s Australian patrol recorded its amazement at the scale of intensive cultivation it found in the 1930s. Since then, archaeobotanical work has shown that Papua New Guinea was a local site for the domestication and dispersal of vegetative crops, notably yam and taro, also banana and sugarcane, and a number of others, sago and so forth. Cook is just one place on that large island, but its, but it's, it's exceptionally well-documented evidence has led to the excavation being nominated for world heritage status. There is almost nothing to see. Peering down a trench during the dig, one might have observed landscape features, a ditch, a mound, but little more. The surface is now covered over for conservation. But then if you raised your eyes, you would see root crops, very similar to those excavated on the site, being grown today. When Europeans first arrived at coastal and hinterland parts of Papua New Guinea in the late 19th and early 20th century, either yam or taro tended to predominate as the principal subsistence crop. The principal crop invariably received ritual attention, people in fact claiming that the plants wouldn't grow without it, and anthropologists have called the plants artefacts. Sweet potatoes came along much later. Whereas sweet potatoes grow from vines pushed into the soil, both yam and taro depend on propagation through a portion of the tuber or corm being detached and put aside from what is eaten to form the beginnings of the new plant. Yams undergo a bifurcated cycle of growth, throwing up vines above ground that cause nutrients to be stored below ground in the tuber. Taro send up thick stalks and leaves above ground and the corn to be replanted will have some stalk attached. The bit so planted may be called a mother or father of the child tuber or corn that grows underground and only at harvest, of course, is what is underground made visible. Let's leave here then, but with some sense perhaps of what these root crops might be in Papua New Guinea, since the next staging post is all about taro souls. So staging post three, taro souls. An ethnobotanical study conducted in the 1960s, it's going to be published posthumously later this year, describes the horticulture of the Mayengi, and that is a name of a people I should be coming back to, the Mayengi of New Britain off the coast of Papua New Guinea. Classic animism. Indeed, the description could have walked off the pages of Tyler. The cultivators ascribed to Taru, their principal food crop, the same theory of the soul that they entertained of themselves. The soul was a kind of second self, a concept Tyler also used, which in the case of which in the case of people permeated every part of the body and was left behind in food remnants or sitting places. 
Taro souls were under the control of various deities, masters of Taro, who had to be coaxed into letting the souls stay attached to the growing plants. Like peoples, Taro souls may get up and wander away, and Taro are quick to take offence if they're not properly cared for. It is the soul of the Taro that makes the corm heavy and nutritious, and effort has to be made to keep the souls tethered to the plants, or the harvest will be worthless. Now, while each plant will only be nutritious if its soul is present, such souls are refractions of a generic taro soul, and dedicated action is necessary to attract as much soul as possible. I mean, you can increase the amount of soul uh, that a taro has. You, you want to attract as much as possible into the growing taro corn to make it weighty and thus satisfy hunger. There will be plants whose soul fails to grow, just as there are people on the margins of society whose souls never develop. Taro soul is thus a stock. It has to be replenished, but properly replenished, it exists in perpetuity. A fractal entity, each particular soul, is also part of generic soul. The same is true of human beings, if one thinks, for example, of the perpetuity of matrilineal kin groups. The matriclan is at once itself and everyone who has been born or will be born. Listen to this Mayengi comment on the efforts of patrol officers to take a population census. Those young white men are ridiculous with their roll books. Why do they count only the living? Don't they know that the living are very few in relation to the dead? If only they could see the spirits of all the dead. Spirits of the dead travel to the origin places of their matriclan and whether remembered or forgotten by living persons, they're part of the present collectivity. Now, if any of you happen to have heard Gananath Obasekara's Forster lecture on the Trobiand Islands, you may recall the nature of Trobiand afterlife from which former clan members are reborn. But the idea of the soul as part of a collectivity isn't peculiar to matriclans. Hermann Strauss, who was part of the staff at the Lutheran Mission established in 1934 in the vicinity of that first patrol camp at Mount Hagen, not far from Cook, observed something very similar of Hagen patriclans. The personal soul which disappears at death is a person's share or participation in the life force of the patriclan. For as long as they are remembered, particular persons exist as ancestral spirits before turning into moths, Hagen people say sometimes. Perhaps it's not the fugitive future of the personal soul to which we should be addressing the question of immortality, but the life force of which any particular soul is a part. Life force, and I'm sorry about that term, but for want of a better one, has being in the enduring kinship collectivity where one soul is also the soul of others. We depart from this staging post 
noting that such a life force is not inert, but requires replenishment. Staging post four, replacements. Here is a little detail that may or may not reflect the patchiness of the ethnographic record. Whereas Mayengi ideas about people's souls can be echoed across the regions of Papua New Guinea, we can't say the same of plant souls. The evidence of an animist attribution of human-like souls to plant crops or other living beings seems much more intermittent. Thus, a recent and uh, very detailed account of yam cultivation uh, in another area identifies people's life force that survives after death in the form of ancestral power, but could find no obvious connection to the growing of plants. There, plants were not said to have souls. So our classic animist study is not, after all, replicated everywhere across Melanesia. But whatever the reason for this intermittency, something even more intriguing comes to light. Many elements which in Mayenge are held together with ideas about the soul are found across numerous ethnographic accounts in terms of the person-like characteristics of plants. And such person-like characteristics of plants are there regardless regardless of whether or not they're thought to have souls. Thus, yams are said to be sensitive to people's movements. Tyro and yams both walk about. Yams flee, these are all not from particular examples, yams flee gardens when there's a drought. Something of the primordial plant is in every plant. Yams have ideas or listen to people, as do Tyro. They may be under the control of spirits or have their own sources of animation in the company of their cultivators or in the company of other plants. The constellation of trees varies, but generally the crops don't grow without kindness and attention. In other words, there's a broader and more inclusive sense of the animatory qualities of yams and taro than simply their manifestation in a doctrine of the soul. And this shifts one's thoughts a bit and suggests a parallel. For similarly, one can imagine the future rebirth of the personal soul or spirit of of people in other members of a kin group, such as a matric clan, with or without a specific doctrine about the soul's journeying. There is no one story of rebirth in Papua New Guinea or in Melanesia at large. Differences abound. Where death is supposed to lead to reincarnation, in some areas the moment of rebirth is left vague and unspecified, whereas in others it's envisaged over a specific three-generation cycle. There may be a diffuse sense that spirits return, or none at all. That is, they just continue their lives as ancestors influencing their descendants. So on analogy with generalised notions about the animation of plants, I wonder if notions about reincarnation are not equally a particular instance of a more general phenomenon. In other words, in the same way as the person-like animation of plants doesn't require a notion of a human-like soul, 
neither does the reincarnation of persons. The more diffuse phenomenon, I suggest, is a concern with replacement. And I'm translating an indigenous term there. With the idea that people who die will be replaced by specific others. While this may be elaborated as a three-generation process, grandparents and grandchildren being identified with one another, it's also found in a two-generation form as between parents and children. It is, among other things, enfolded into marriage rules, as in the claim people have on former in-laws to provide future spouses, which in turn, of course, depends on the discreteness of the kin group that sees itself being replenished in this way. And this seems to be an immortality of a kind. The dynamic of replacement makes sense of the often fragmentary nature of stories about the afterlife. Stories often carry on so far and then trail vaguely off. The point is surely that there is no need for a continuous narrative as though the soul had a life history or for narrational consistency about its return precisely because replacement is a self-evident process. Yet if this concept of replacement doesn't require a narrative about what happens to particular personal souls, the soul may come back into the picture in another respect, namely as part of a generic life force. From the perspective of the kin group, matri or patriclan, replacement is effected through the regeneration of group members, and that implies the perpetuation of the collective life force. And for that, the clan group forever needs conduits, needs channels, bodily conduits. One colloquial connotation of replacement lies in the Hagen idea that a person recognises as his or her particular replacement a child or some other relative who has a similar body form to his or her own. Nothing to do with inheritance or succession, a simple question of a counterpart likeness in bodily form. But what is the body? We have to turn aside at the next staging post for an issue so far evaded. Staging post five, the animist body. We shouldn't be too surprised to find Tyler sitting waiting for us at the bottom of this post. For among the reasons the Victorian thinker gave for rejecting the idea that the animist soul could be described as immortal was the idea that it was not immaterial enough, not spiritual enough. And I quote, the soul as recognised in such philosophies, he means animism, may be defined as an ethereal surviving being, concepts of which proceeded and led up to the more transcendental theory of the immaterial and immortal soul, which forms part of the theology of higher nations, he says. In fact, he refers to the ethereal substance of the animist soul. Myengi people would be in accord. The soul or double self 
is said to have a viscous liquid presence animating at one at once the inner and outer form of a person. It exists both sides of the person. It will be no exaggeration, I'm, I'm quoting from the ethnographer, it will be no exaggeration to say that the whole life cycle of the Maenge is spent in the effort of recovering or keeping these two souls or selves together. While one may be called inner and the other outer soul, they can only be held together by that to which they give life, namely the body that after death is no more than an empty husk. Their ethnographer argues that there is nothing mystical here. Counterintuitively for us, perhaps, this double self is captured in terms neither of spirit nor of substance. In many respects, it seems easier to apprehend the Melanesian soul than to apprehend the Melanesian body. Perhaps we can call the body that which is animated. Reciprocally, it's also that on which the soul's replenishment depends. For the soul needs a container, a conduit, and what passes through people's bodies is in counterpoint to what passes through spirit bodies. In relation to Maengitaru, in myth, food is the excrement of supernatural beings, conveyed by and coming from their bodies, while people's bodies are equally conduits for the growth and continuity of taro soul. Taro soul is augmented by passing through the bodies of people. More generally, we may say that the soul requires this constant replenishment in the things it animates. Yet the notion of material substance clings fast to the way anthropologists have described Melanesian conceptualizations of the body. In life, the body appears to be composed of substances that circulate inside and outside blood and milk and so forth in relation to other bodies. Just as in death, people treat it in terms of the difference between flesh that decays and bones that endure. In the language they use, your American anthropologists cannot help giving these aggregations and disaggregations a material cast, as in the very notion of substance itself. But perhaps what we've learnt about the soul will help here. I focus on one aspect <coughs> of life and death, recognisable across Melanesia, including Mount Hagen. There seem parallels between, on the one hand, the personal soul that dissipates after death and the bodily materials that decompose, and, on the other, what endures of the bones for a while and the continuing identity, for a while, of ancestral spirits. To the Euro-American observer, the body's materiality seems especially evident in the decay and disappearance of the flesh. But perhaps we should pay more attention to that process of decomposition. It is regenerative. Flesh is, in, is invariably regarded as returning to the land and contributing to the regeneration of the facility of the, the fertility of the soil. How so? Surely because the vitality its soul gave it, 
And do you remember that soul permeates the living body? It's that vitality that is released into the ground. In other words, the very feature that might suggest the body is material, its capacity for decomposition, is a flow of life force, the basis of fresh growth. That same aspect, bodily decay, is also in your American eyes a sign of mortality. Yet in these Melanesian configurations, the constant replenishment of the soil seems to me no less immortalizing than the perpetual replacement of persons as members of kin groups. Indeed, in many areas, there's a direct connection, for example, through a clan's identification with its land. And as the soul, now more generically um, uh, life force, travels from one container to another, it too is replenished, now growing as a person's body, now growing as fertile soil, and the animate bodies, human and non-human, that the soil will produce. Might we then, in this regard, talk of the immortality of the body? I turn to notions about the reincarnation of food plants. It's in the treatment of the dead parts of these plants that we find a specific justification for talking about immortality. We shall catch up with Tyler at the post after next, but in the meanwhile, what follows is obviously speculative. Staging post six, the immortality of the body. As we look around, we can see Cook again. You'll recall the archaeological site in Hagen, though from another point of view. There is not much in the ethnographic record that would speak as directly as I'm going to, although there are plenty of signs and pointers. That said, similar reflections have not escaped one or two present-day Papua New Guinean academics, notably the the archaeologist John Muke, who was closely involved with the nomination of the World Heritage Site. He articulated one of the foundations on which the nomination was based, the environs of the site. As I said, there's nothing there to be seen, which presents some problems to the local committee who needs who needs uh, indicators. Visible around Cook, he argued, was an organically evolved landscape displaying the continuing cultivation of the plants to whose early exploitation the archaeology attested. He also mentioned the perpetual movement of plants and people across clan groups and the value put, always put on finding new gardens for replanting a circulation already um, uh, imagined by the archaeologists for thousands of years ago. Now, the phrase continuing cultivation hides an observation that the linguist botanist André Audricourt made many years ago of yam growing in island Melanesia. Each plant is a clone of a previous one, the same genetic individual. The taro and yams that Hagen people cultivate are, in this sense, the same individuals, the clones of those first plants that were to be cultivated over the millennia. Now, this does not mean that there was no possibility of change. 
In the words of two archaeobotanists, and I have to quote them because I don't really understand this, while reproduction involves the clonal propagation from one plant to another, this does not prevent the formation of novel hybrids or domesticates. And what they say is, though asexual propagation only allows for somatic mutation in the genome of the new plants, changes to the physical environment can cause favorable and lasting changes to the clonal phenotypes. And the movement of these varieties within, within human spaces would have naturally led to the creation of new variants. Vegetative or asexual propagation does not lack change then, but it does mean that each plant is a clone of the previous one. They are all one plant. Now there is evidence that in Melanesian horticulture, such propagation was pursued as a matter of choice. So many of these plants were, were capable of being propagated by seed, but that was ignored and vegetative propagation was the preferred method. Each new plant taking as a cutting or node from a previous one. And in the case of taro, the stalk is detached from the corm to be eaten with a little bit of the parent corm adhering to it for replanting. For not so distant neighbours of Maenge, though, though I won't bother you with the name, another ethnographer of New Britain says outright, the taro stalk is immortal. And she says, taro stalks were inherited, traded, imported and exported. When someone said, this is my grandfather's taro, it was clear that it was not only the same variety as the grandfather had planted, but was considered to be the identical plant, the identical stalk that the grandfather had planted. The taro stalk has an immortality that is taken as a human model. In some instances, the history of a specific variety parallels that of a genealogical descent group, in others of a local group, and in yet others offers a personal history as to who first imported it. Above all, the identification of the present planter with his or her predecessor, the one whom he or she has replaced, is repeated over and again. Both men and women desire replacements. With the next generation in sight, however, Anticipating their replacement also anticipates their death. And the same is true of plants. Without going into detail, it's the bit of the corm or tuber that is cut off or otherwise separated from what is to be eaten that provides the nourishment for the new corm or tuber that grows in its stead. What is eventually harvested is, in effect, a replacement for the piece that was planted, frequently imagined as a parent, with a father or mother who dries, dries up, shrivels and dies away. There's an, obs an observation to be made here. We do not need to decide whether the discarded part of the plant and what is growing in its place is soul or substance. We don't need to decide. Not just because of the impossibility of these terms, but because, unlike the demands of the World Heritage nomination, we don't require a doctrine of continu continuity that would have to trace the past and future of these elements. There is no need to narrativize the soul or have a theory about continuous material regeneration. On the contrary, if we were to ally the botanist's knowledge of vegetative reproduction through cloning 
with these indigenous actions that ensure perpetual replacement, our attention would be elsewhere. It will be on the repeated breaks with the previous generation, the repeated cuts, the repeated deaths required for the next generation to spring anew. Thus, among some present-day people at Cook, where heritage debates might suppose claims about unbroken continuity, the kind of continuity that John Mukke, the Papua New Guinean archaeologist, was pointing to, seems closer to an analogy. And this is certainly how, at least how some Hagen people also express it. They say they can't possibly know who it was who cultivated this area millennia ago. But those people's actions and practices were like those of today, and today's people now live there in their stead. What is evident is the replacement, just as in the clan child or the plant offspring. Repeated cuts, repeated deaths, so what is death? We turn up at the penultimate staging post where Tyler's shadow can be seen again and are going to stay here a little bit longer. Staging post seven, life and death. Something Tyler said about the animist soul comes back to mind. Apropos the spiritual aspects of the soul in the theology of higher nations, he talks of the immaterial and immortal soul as a transcendental one. The life of the soul surpasses other forms of existence. We may add that the very formulation holds transcendental possibility. A transcendentalist view at once embraces ideas of both transcendence and immanence, while also supposing immanence as its transcended opposite. Thus it can suggest, which is as far as Tyler goes, that there are lower beliefs and practices locked into some kind of pre-transcendental state. In that state of affairs, there's no life or power beyond what is already imminent in the mundane world. Whether we go back to the axial age or to the countless reformations of Christian history, transcendence is the perspective from which imminentism, in whatever form, can emerge as an apparently counter set of beliefs and practices. As to what has to be overcome in transcendentalist thinking, in the case of persons, this generally entails some aspect of their being or selfhood. One answer that must have been familiar to Tyler's 19th century contemporaries with those higher religions in mind is obvious. What is overcome is mortality. It follows that if it's the soul that transcends death, then some other part of the person must die, from which comes a particular imagining of the material mortal body. Death thus implies a cessation of non-spiritual life, the end of the life course in the present world. That radical disjuncture also requires that one only dies once. And we'll come back to that. Not in Tyler's terms, but as a legacy of his writing, I want to suggest that the concept of imminentism turns out to be unexpectedly helpful. 
understood as a mode of existence that resides within or permeates being in the world, it allows me to give a half turn to the question I started with. I had wondered if we might ask about immortality in immanist thought, Melanesian speaking. So let me rephrase that. The question becomes, what would everlasting life for an immanentist existence look like? And it carries a corollary, what would death look like? First then, immanentist life. By definition, such life is discoverable anywhere, though people may formulate it in different ways for persons, plants or animals. Entities that Euro-Americans would regard as inanimate, such as features of the landscape, may be addressed as personal beings. As a force of growth or regeneration, life is present in the forms things take in trees that grow in the flourishing of children, in good health and so forth. It implies an active positive condition, often additionally secured through invisible but present beings such as ancestral ghosts, and is made visible in the health and brightness of enduring vitality. Mayenge would say that these things show, show how much soul one has. Such life is everlasting because people take steps to perpetuate it through appropriate rituals or cult activity. They intervene to ensure its perpetuation, whether on a routine basis through spells or magic to make things grow, or on an occasional basis by bringing in spirit beings as as special concentrations of life force. In other words, they immortalize themselves and what sustains them. In fact, one might say that life in this sense is the immortalizing set of actions that people take in order to perpetuate their being. One might even say that the only life that can be lived is life everlasting, insofar as the evidence for vitality and thus the flourishing of people is there in the antecedent generations that brought them into being and will exist in the future generations that replace them. Moreover, as we saw in the case of the cycling of Mayengi Taru souls, people don't just draw on such generative capacity as a source of life for themselves. They are also conduits for its perpetuation. Equally significantly then, People's actions are important for replenishing this power. Life has to be regenerated, people have to plant, and they have to procreate. And this, but this sense of procreation is perhaps closer to that of cloning than of lineality. Depending on where one is in Melanesia, um, collectivities of, of, uh, of kin perpetually replace themselves. The point is that there must be forthcoming generations who will be the future channels or conduits of life, like the tubers that spring anew from the soil. This kind of imminentist life does not culminate in a higher order of being, but inheres in the deliberate regeneration of the present order of being to which everything belongs. So what about imminentist death? Well, you can imagine what I'm going to say. If life is all around and everlasting, so too death is all around and everlasting. It's not the same as life. Rather, it's the condition of existence that makes people work so hard at being alive. It is what makes life an achievement. In truth, people die all the time. 
as when their souls, their invisible selves, wander away when they're sleeping or get captured by others. The botanist Odrico tells of an encounter on a dockside in Port Vila, Vanuatu, between two men who imagine they recognise one another. One of them, thinking the other is a long-deceased relative, whispers to him, Are you dead or alive? Rather than a state of finality, death is an ever-present possibility for a person's invisible self. Indeed, when it's held in a person, life or life force is under constant attack, whether from malevolent sorcery or malicious enemies or ancestral ghosts who withdraw support. Someone's innards may be eaten by a witch but sewn up again and the victim doesn't know he or she has only a short while left. The very fact that life force permeates the body means that it is present in exuviae, vulnerable to manipulation by death-dealing others. A A person dies once and for all only when their invisible self succumbs to an attack that is irreversible. In other words, they can no longer keep their soul or souls together with the body as the soul's container. In the language I've been using, they have ceased to be a conduit for the increase of life force. Like a Mayenge taro without its invisible self, the body without a soul cannot survive to nourish others in that form. And of course, it's routinely reported that mourning for a person starts once their soul has departed, and as soon as there are signs of its departure, the body is bound to drop away because life continues in other persons. If life is part of a generic life force sustained through particular people's actions, so death, we may say, is part of a death force. As has been described for Hagen people around Cook, everything that exists can be seen as a transmitter of the forces of life or death. Death is imagined as a specific agency penetrating the world of human affairs. And every irreversible death comes from the malign will of spirits or men, that is, from an attack on the life force. I quote, the aim of sorcerers is to destroy the soul or the life force of the person to be killed. And this is the missionary anthropology Strauss, whom I mentioned before, who'd been at Cook in the area since the 1930s, for which one needs something uh, 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 within which the soul of the person is contained, or bits of the soul like leftover food or discarded garments, or simply a person's name. And it's possible in this way to take revenge for an injury without recourse to fighting. It all happens invisibly. One can destroy an enemy by having a ritual expert call on the enemy's name, through which one enlists his ancestral spirit so they hand over his soul. One more comment on death. On analogy with the life that springs anew in the newly growing tarocorm or yam tuber, the falling away of the husk that was initially planted as the offspring's mother or father also seems a regenerative moment. That wasting and decay enables new life, which is itself the parent in a transformed state. It's a form of death that is not a finality to be overcome or transcended. Rather, it's an instrument of everyday, non-miraculous rebirth. We've come to the... You're not worrying about the time, I hope. We've just come to the last staging post, number eight. Uh, souls in other selves. 
I've obviously trod a very selective path from post to post. Among innumerable combinations and permutations in how people frame life and death, I focused on only two kinds of food plants. And while the horizon of 10,000 years ago was introduced partly to put the last 60 or 100 years into perspective as a very recent epoch, I've ignored even more recent ways of life. But these qualifications aside, let me reflect on what has emerged about Melanesian immanentism. It's important to appreciate that the everlasting character of both life and death does not imply endless continuity or lack of change. To the contrary, people's interest in the replacement of a life force, whether in themselves or the crops that are so much of themselves, is also an interest in the displacement of one life by another. I mean, gardeners, for example, are always looking for new varieties of food crops uh, to plant. The process of keeping life going is never straightforward, always requires work, ritual and otherwise. And moving from one moment to the next, this replacement, or which is also a displacement, is disjunctive. The life force that infuses any particular soul must enter fresh conduits, other selves. Perhaps we now have some sense of the imminentist soul for these horticulturalists. While we may appreciate Tyler's healthy scepticism about reading 19th century theological notions into the animism of other cultures, he pursued a relation between the material and immaterial. Indeed, the Victorians overcompensated in their auto-critique, criticising the assumption that the soul is invariably a spiritual being, they stressed the materiality of animist notions and, of course, the accessibility of the spirit world at large to human needs and desires, overplaying the material and mundane and reserving for themselves a different kind of spirituality, a transcendental move, if there was one. But Miss Zweibruck's wonderful rubric concerning immortality has lifted us out of this. We simply do not need to concern ourselves with the relation between body and soul in, return, in the terms of materiality and spirituality, the material and the immaterial. I threw in a playful aside on the immortality of the body just to underline the ambiguities these terms introduce. And I hasten to add, in that case, that this isn't getting rid of a binary for the sake of doing so, on the contrary, there's a powerful binary at play in these imminentist worlds, but it's not this. We've already encountered it at one, or two junc- at one or two junctures, the contrast between what is seen and what exists unseen. Melanesians are constantly testing what it is they see. Are you a living man or a dead one, was the whisper. The unseen is in many registers from the secrecy that excludes some to whole invisible counterworlds. And although of another time and place, I'm reminded of Marianne Fermé's The Underneath of Things. What is invisible works as a motivating, potentially activating state of affairs of which visible appearance may or may not offer a cue. In effect, this is a pairing 
that may be turned inside out. We might say that the visible and the invisible adhere to each other, rather like Mayenga's outer and inner souls. At the outset, I remarked on the kind of immortality that the circulation of ideas in the academy suggests. Not only in the notion that one person's ideas may be reborn as another's, but also that they are purposefully regenerated. Perhaps that makes less strange some of these immanentist notions, despite, of course, different orientations in many other respects. As to purposeful regeneration, however, let me be explicit about what we might or might not want to keep of Tyler's doctrine of souls. As we've heard, Tyler tied immortality to a notion of an enduring, immaterial, spiritual life. In animism, he demonstrated over and again, to his own satisfaction, that what might look like a notion of immortality was diminished by not being immaterial enough. Thus he wrote, Granted that the soul survives the death of the body, instance after instance from the records shows this soul to be regarded as a mortal being liable like the body itself to accident and death. In retrospect, we can see that combining immortal and immaterial is simply repeated in its opposite, the identification of the mortal with the material, and it's not helpful. What we might like to keep is that in talking about soul, he found a common language with his contemporaries for all that he wished to disabuse them of misconceptions about the origins of religious thought. The problem of language recurs, is born over and again. An English speaker cannot talk of soul without its opposite, body, and body is the mortal bit. Take that opposition away, and one's subject matter seems to vanish. So rather than throwing out the concepts, the anthropologist may set them spinning, as I've tried to do here. I have tethered the account instead to areas of Melanesian horticultural practice insofar as these provide a specific model for thinking of everlasting life, less perhaps as an immortality frozen at the moment of death, as in uh, some your, your uh, American views, than as ceaseless regeneration. If we can identify something that's appropriate to call soul and refer to its rebirth within a kinship community, it can also be identified in the constant return of fleshly nourishment to the soil and its cultivation, and Melanesians themselves may express this by drawing attention to the life cycles of the taro and yams they cultivate. Long ago, Odrico offered an apt formula. People are cultivated, uh, apropos uh, Melanesia, people are cultivated during their lifetime, he said, and indeed planted is the way we would have to translate human in Hagen idiom, uh, as the Cook archaeologist Muke also attests. And they cease to be, they cease to be cultivated at death. Miss Vybrook's interest in immortality has opened up what it means that such beings are no longer themselves cultivated, they survive now in the life of others. I have a, <clears throat> a very brief postscript, if you will 
allow. And if you'll just indulge me, this is a, a, a postscript for the anthropologists who are here. Miss Vybrook's interest in immortality is not irrelevant to the 20th century anthropology that flourished after animism had disappeared as a topic. There was a long period when aspects, aspects of societies that might formerly have been called animistic were studied under the rubrics of categories more compatible with self-acknowledged modern institutions such as politics, economics, religion and so forth. For British social anthropologists like myself, the social turn that followed Durkheim's transformative formula, religion is society, worshipping itself, meant that there was a great swing of interest towards social organisation, including the prominence of institutions such as dissent groups, that is, the interactions of clan and kin collectivities. This was a notable example of anthropological rejuvenation and demise for dissent groups were discovered in Melanesia and then discarded. The point to extract is that when they were occupying centre stage, these constructs made a kind of immortality visible to the anthropologist. As anthropologists uncovered the powers and circumstances of a markedly social life, where political or economic interests were seen to shape religious precepts or kinship obligations, they also brought to attention the dynamics of a self-regenerating social formation, perpetual succession, society enduring in its structures, roles reproduced, and so forth. Perhaps those immortal descent groups have since been too quickly dispatched from anthropological purview. Indeed, one might revisit analyses of the way in which people are or are not caught up in kin groups as a model of self-formation that is also a collective formation in order to query an axiomatic assumption that ran through the early animist literature. Um, And I end on this point. This was the assumption that people's personal awareness of their experience as sentient beings projected, it was argued, onto their environment is sufficient to account for their apprehensions and ideas. The notion that how people perceive themselves is projected onto other entities normalises the soul as originating within the human being. Now, it's no doubt going too far to suggest that people gave themselves the souls they already recognised in other selves human or non-human. But in any event, that notion of projection has often rendered mute the state of affairs encountered in imminentist regimes and people's immortalising work in keeping the world going. Thank you very much. I'd really like to thank Professor Strathern for making the world feel so much richer and a lot more crowded, I would say. Um, Professor Strathern will take questions, and Ellen will uh, take the microphone around. And We ask that you um, make these questions and make them brief so everyone who would like to ask something has time to do so. Um, so please raise your hand if you have a question. 
Uh, I have hearing problems, so I need to come close to you despite your microphone. I won't yell loudly then. Thank you. Thank you so much. As an archaeobotanist, I just love this. Um, but I did want to ask you something that may be too specific for your talk, but Anna Miggs has been a big influence on me, and she talks about this life force called Nu, and I'm assuming you know about that because it's from... This is Anna, Anna Singh. Uh, no, Miggs. Oh, sorry. Miggs, Anna Miggs. Oh, oh sorry, beg your pardon. Miggs. Um, oh, Anna Miggs, yes, of course. Yes, Anna, yes, I know yes. Anna Miggs, yes. Right, Nu, and she calls Nu, and I'm assuming... That's a version of the life force Absolutely, you were talking yes, about. Yes. Would you say it's the same or different? How is it? Because the focus that she talks about is people gain life force through eating, eating this that's food right. that's being generated exactly. in the garden. And that is uh, certainly part of what you were talking about, but you didn't say anything about that. If you could comment about eating. Uh, absolutely. What, what, what she says is absolutely correct. I mean, that, that is, part, that is part, of, part of the whole cycle. And, in course, in eating, you're also eating this, in those places that regard pl- plants having souls, and not all do. But you're, you're, you are, are channeling the, the vitality of the plants as well in, 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 that, in, that, in that process. I mean, it's both, both, lots, both sides are nourished. It's a mutual nourishment, in a sense, which is... A, a non-consuming metaphor, if anybody wants to ask what the relevance of this is to 21st century. <laughs> Surely there's at least one more question. I, this is coming from Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> but So there are three bodies that emanate Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. It's this eminence of like presence and being and everything appears in impermanence. So it follows very nicely. I really appreciated what you had to say. And it's interesting how yeah, different well, traditions have very similar um, yes. truths. There's only one yes. reality. But, but shouldn't I be uncomfortable about that? How so? Shouldn't, shouldn't I regard... Uh, forms of Buddhism as belonging to the transcendental? Um, it depends on what kind of Buddhism of course, you're talking of course, about. Yes. yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank yes. you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Marilyn. Uh, I want to talk about the people with whom I've worked, Inuit or Eskimos of northern Canada, because the kind of arguments about immortality have a great relevance today, one of which is the Canadian uh, sorrow and anger at the enormous suicide rate amongst the uh, indigenous peoples, particularly the Inuit, particularly young men. But the Inuit have explicitly or tacitly a belief in three souls, uh, one of which is a breath soul that leaves you when you die. A breath is a soul. The other one is a tangnyuk. It's, uh, I guess it's more like the kinds of soul that uh, when you die goes somewhere but doesn't re-enter you. But the most important one is the name. The name is the person, is the soul. And when a child is about to be born, somebody is calling the name of a past person and when it hears its name, it comes out. And, of course, this means that they don't designate men or women. Uh, so you, are, you may be called by your mother, grandfather, or great-uncle, or something like that, because that's who you are. 
which is one of the reasons that children are treated with some respect, or supposed to be. But nowadays, the Canadian government and many other people are really worried about the high suicide rate. But from the point of view of many of the young people, and this is the work of Lisa Stevenson, who got a PhD at Berkeley a few years ago, they say, well, my friend died recently, or my friend committed suicide recently, and he's up there, and I'd love to join him. I miss him, and I don't particularly like it here anyhow. And so, uh, well, maybe I'll go off in my truck and shoot myself or otherwise commit suicide. Then I'll see who I become the next time. After all, I've been alive for thousands of years. I am the same person for thousands of years. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Puts it in a nutshell. I am curious about the structure of your talk. The eight posts. Yes. Um, is that the? Um, have you used that before in giving a talk? Well, um, I wasn't showing any slides. There was no mm -hmm. relief from the text. Right. Um, so I thought I, I thought it might actually help if there was a little joke that recurred <laughs> at, at intervals. Mm -hmm. But it also enabled me to do something, of course, which I have used many times, which is to juxtapose quite different material and then gradually bring it together. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that is a device. I mean, you start mm -hmm. far apart, and then by the end, you put it together, and that's a device I often use, yes. But on this occasion, it was because there was no, as I say, there was no other relief from the it, spoken it, it worked. Word. It worked beautifully, and I think it did help the listener to also visualize the posts and the and urged us to make connections. Well, they were in my they were in my head about, yeah. about this time. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and you transmitted that to ours as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that comment. <laughs> uh, since you have uh, reanimated for us animism, uh, I wonder if you can also uh, reconstitute for us what the where we stand as something that's not animistic. Uh, you mentioned Euro-America or something like that, which sounds like Disneyland or something. But, but yeah, where, yeah. how would you characterize this Euro-American idea in, insofar as it's different from animism? <clears throat> yes, perhaps I, sh I should make very clear. I'm, I'm not actually doing a comparison between... Euro-American societies and cultures and these other Melanesian societies and cultures. And those two terms are, are not on a par, even though I label them as though they are. The point is that um, the language through which I'm describing what I'm trying to describe in Melanesia is of itself a particular historical, cultural moment. And it is labelling that moment. So I, I am actually labelling the language I use as you're American. Um, I, think, I think that's probably, probably the best way I can. But as to, uh, well, um, I, I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting really, uh, really out, of, out of my depth here. Um, but insofar as that little contrast between transcendentalism and immanentism has, has any force. It is, of course, countlessly reinvented at every moment of, of religious ref, reforma, reformation of diverse kinds for 2,000 years as far as, as, as Christianity is 
So things are identified as one or the, one or the other constantly. So it's, it's a constantly reinvented duo, uh, which means that we shouldn't be at all surprised to find ourselves doing imminentist things. And that's, 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 not a, that's not an issue. The only thing is that um, if you start talking that way, then you evoke you evoke a, 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 a problem sometimes uh, because they look as though you're you're being superstitious or you're not being rational or whatever whatever. But it's not a problem that it, that the imminentists I'm talking about have. It's it's only a problem of imminentist behaviour within a transcendentalist position. But I'm sorry about those awkward terms and. We have time for one more question. There will be time after the lectures if you'd like to speak to Professor Strathern. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you so much uh, for the talk. Um, I have a more personal question uh, for how you decided to the topic of, of this. Uh, I know it's linked to the lecture, but um, where does your inspiration to think about concepts the way you think and thinking through relations, with relations, come from. It's like these memories from your experience uh, in Indonesia, or do you need to go back to to conversations? Do you also need to go, like, I don't know, personally back there? To I'm, I'm just wondering where this kind of... Um, force come come from that like makes you think for from the limit and um, yeah thank you um, <clears throat> that, 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 that that's actually very a very important question uh, because I've been doing what many scholars do which is mingle their thoughts in with the material that they're trying to describe And in one sense, that's completely unavoidable because you can only order that material by conceptualizing it in certain ways. Um, uh, yes, actually, there's one thing I can say in my favor. Don't let me forget it. Clench <laughs> <laughs> my hand. Um, you're completely right to ask the question. Because one has to keep that process under, really under control. One has to be constantly self-scrutinizing the categories through which one's thinking and, and, pre and, and, and presenting. Um, but um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with anthropological procedures, um, but all this, everything I've talked about um, is rooted in descriptions um, that have been made by numerous anthropologists across, across Melanesia, So almost, almost all my um, baseline um, observations are, are, are documented by others, and that's what I mean by referring to ethnographic, ethnographic accounts. But then, of course, I've spun things because of the pleasure of spinning. <laughs> <laughs> But in, 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 in my own favor, I will say that um, uh, one or two... Papua New Guinean academics who've read The Gender of the Gift think thinks it gives a reasonable, a reasonable account. So I think <laughs> maybe the spinning sometimes works. <laughs> 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.